Section 29 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 14. In the days that followed, Billy's swelling went down, and the bruises passed away with surprising rapidity. The quick healing of the lacerations attested the healthiness of his blood. Only remained the black eyes, unduly conspicuous on a face as blonde as his. The discoloration was stubborn, persisting half a month, in which time happened diverse events of importance. Otto Frank's trial had been expeditious. Found guilty by a jury, notable for the business and professional men on it, the death sentence was passed upon him, and he was removed to San Quentin for execution. The case of Chester Johnson and the fourteen others had taken longer, but in the same week it too was finished. Chester Johnson was sentenced to be hanged. Two got life, three twenty years. Only two were acquitted. The remaining seven received terms from two to ten years. The effect on Saxon was to throw her into deep depression. Billy was made gloomy, but his fighting spirit was not subdued. Always some men killed in battle, he said. That's to be expected. But the way of sentencing them gets me. All found guilty was responsible for killing, or none was responsible. If all was, then they should get the same sentence. They ought to hang like Chester Johnson, or else he ought not to hang. i just like to know how the judge makes up his mind. It must be like making China lottery tickets. He plays hunches. He looks at a guy and waits for a spot or a number to come into his head. How else could he give Johnny Black four years and Cal Hutchin twenty years? He played the hunches as they came into his head, and it might just as easy have been the other way round. And Cal Hutchin got four years and Johnny Black twenty. I know both them boys. They hung out with the Tenth and Kirkham gang, mostly, though sometimes they ran with my gang. We used to go swimming after school, down to Sandy Beach on the marsh, and in the transit slip, where they said the water was sixty feet deep, only it wasn't. And once, on a Thursday, we dug a lot of clams together, and played hooky Friday to peddle them. And we used to go out on the rock wall and catch pogies and rock cod. One day, the day of the eclipse, Cal caught a perch half as big as a door. I've never seen such a fish, and now he's got to wear the stripes for twenty years. Lucky he wasn't married. If he don't get the consumption, he'll be an old man when he comes out. Cal's mother wouldn't let him go swimming, and whenever she suspected, she always licked his hair with her tongue. If it tasted salty, he got a beaten. But he was on to himself. Coming home, he jumped somebody's front fence and hold his head under a faucet. I used to dance with Chester Johnson, Saxon said, and I knew his wife, Kitty Brady, long, long ago. She had next place at the table to me in the paper box factory. She's gone to San Francisco to her married sisters. She's going to have a baby, too. She was awfully pretty, and there was always a string of fellows after her. The effect of the conviction in severe sentences was a bad one on the Union men. 
Instead of being disheartening, it intensified the bitterness. Billy's repentance for having fought and the sweetness and affection which had flashed up in the days of Saxon's nursing of him were blotted out. At home he scowled and brooded, while his talk took on the tone of Bert's in the last days ere that Mohegan died. Also Billy stayed away from home longer hours and was again steadily drinking. Saxon well-nigh abandoned hope. Almost was she steeled to the inevitable tragedy which her morbid fancy painted in a thousand guises. Often it was of Billy being brought home on a stretcher. Sometimes it was a call to the telephone in the corner grocery and the curt information by a strange voice that her husband was lying in the receiving hospital or the morgue. And when the mysterious horse-poisoning cases occurred, and when the residence of one of the teeming magnets was half destroyed by dynamite, she saw Billy in prison, or wearing stripes, or mounting to the scaffold at San Quentin, while at the same time she could see the little cottage on Pine Street besieged by newspaper reporters and photographers. Yet her lively imagination failed altogether to anticipate the real catastrophe. Harmon, the fireman lodger, passing through the kitchen on his way out to work, had paused to tell Saxon about the previous day's train wreck in the Alviso marshes, and of how the engineer, imprisoned under the overturned engine and unhurt, being drowned by the rising tide, had begged to be shot. Billy came in at the end of the narrative, and from the somber light in his heavy-lidded eyes, Saxon knew he had been drinking. He glowered at Harmon, and without greeting to him or Saxon, leaned his shoulder against the wall. Harmon felt the awkwardness of the situation, and did his best to appear oblivious. I was just telling your wife, he began, but was savagely interrupted. I don't care what you was telling her, but I got something to tell you, Mr. Man. My wife's made up your bed too many times to suit me. Billy, Saxon cried, her face scarlet with resentment and hurt and shame. Billy ignored her. Harmon was saying, I don't understand. Well, I don't like your mug, Billy informed him. You're standing on your foot. Get off of it. Get out. Beat it. Do you understand that? I don't know what's gotten into him, Saxon gasped hurriedly to the fireman. He's not himself. Oh, I'm so ashamed, so ashamed. Billy turned on her. Shut your mouth and keep out of this. But Billy, she remonstrated. And get out of here. You go into the other room. Here now, Harmon broke in. This is a fine way to treat a fellow. I've given you too much rope as it is, was Billy's answer. I've paid my rent regularly, haven't I? I ought to knock your block off for you. Don't see any reason... I shouldn't, for that matter. If you do anything like that, Billy, Saxon began. You still here? Well, if you won't go into the other room, I'll see that you do. His hand clutched her arm. For one instant she resisted his strength, and in that instant the flesh crushed under his fingers. She realized the fullness of his strength. In the front room she could only lie back in the Morris chair sobbing and listen to what occurred in the kitchen. I'll stay to the end of the week, the fireman was saying. I've paid in advance. 
Don't make no mistake, came Billy's voice, so slow that it was almost draw, yet quivering with rage. You can't get out too quickly if you want to stay healthy. You and your traps with you. I'm likely to start something any moment. Oh, I know you're a slugger, the fireman's voice began. Then came the unmistakable impact of a blow, the crash of glass, a scuffle on the back porch, and finally the heavy bumps of a body down the steps. She heard Billy re-enter the kitchen, move about, and knew he was sweeping up the broken glass of the kitchen door. Then he washed himself at the sink, whistling as he dried his face and hands, and walked into the front room. She did not look at him. She was too sick and sad. He paused irresolutely, seeming to make up his mind. I'm going uptown, he stated. There's a meeting of the Union. If I don't come back, it'll be because that geezer's sworn out a warrant. He opened the front door and paused. She knew he was looking at her. Then the door closed, and she heard him go down the steps. Saxon was stunned. She did not think. She did not know what to think. The whole thing was incomprehensible, incredible. She lay back in the chair, her eyes closed, her mind almost a blank, crushed by a leaden feeling that the end had come to everything. The voices of children playing in the street aroused her. Night had fallen. She groped her way to a lamp and lighted it. In the kitchen she stared, lips trembling, at the pitiful, half-prepared meal. The fire had gone out. The water had boiled away from the potatoes. When she lifted the lid, a burnt smell arose. Methodically she scraped and cleaned the pot, putting things in order, and peeled and sliced the potatoes for next day's frying. And just as methodically she went to bed. Her lack of nervousness, her placidity, was abnormal, so abnormal that she closed her eyes and was almost immediately asleep. Nor did she awaken till the sunshine was streaming into the room. It was the first night she and Billy had slept apart. She was amazed that she had not lain awake worrying about him. She lay with eyes wide open, scarcely thinking, until pain in her arm attracted her attention. It was where Billy had gripped her. On examination, she found the bruised flesh fearfully black and blue. She was astonished, not by the spiritual fact that such bruise had been administered by the one she loved most in the world, but by the sheer physical fact that an instant's pressure had inflicted so much damage. The strength of a man was a terrible thing. Quite impersonally, she found herself wondering if Charlie Long were as strong as Billy. It was not until she dressed and built the fire that she began to think about more immediate things. Billy had not returned. Then he was arrested. What was she to do? Leave him in jail? Go away and start life afresh? Of course it was impossible to go on living with a man who had behaved as he had. But then came another thought. Was it impossible? After all, he was her husband. For better or worse, the phrase reiterated itself a monotonous accompaniment to her thoughts at the back of her consciousness. To leave him was to surrender. She carried the matter before the tribunal of her mother's memory. No, Daisy would never have surrendered 
Daisy was a fighter. Then she, Saxon, must fight. Besides, and she acknowledged it, readily, though in a cool, dead way, besides, Billy was better than most husbands, better than any other husband she had heard of. She concluded, as she remembered many of his earlier nicenesses and finenesses, and especially his eternal chant, Nothing is too good for us. The Roberts ain't on the cheap. At eleven o'clock she had a caller. It was Bud Struthers, Billy's mate, on strike duty. Billy, he told her, had refused bail, refused a lawyer. He asked to be tried by the court and had pleaded guilty and had received a sentence of sixty dollars or thirty days. Also, he had refused to let the boys pay his fine. He's clean loony, Struthers summed up. Won't listen to reason. Says he'll serve out his time. He's been tanking up too regular, I guess. His wheels are buzzing. Here, he give me this note for you. Anytime you want anything, send for me. The boys all stand by Billy's wife. You belong to us, you know. How are you off for money? Proudly she disclaimed any need for money. And not until her visitor departed did she read Billy's note. Dear Saxon, Bud Struthers is going to give you this. Don't worry about me. I'm going to take my medicine. I deserve it, you know that. I guess I am gone bughouse. Just the same, I am sorry for what I done. Don't come to see me. I don't want you to. If you need money, the union will give you some. The business agent is all right. I will be out in a month. Now, Saxon, you know I love you. Just say to yourself that you forgive me this time, and you won't never have to do it again. Billy Bud Struthers was followed by Maggie Donahue and Mrs. Olson, who paid neighborly calls of cheer and were tactful in their efforts of help and in studiously avoiding more references than was necessary to Billy's predicament. In the afternoon, James Harmon arrived. He limped slightly, and Saxon divined that he was doing his best to minimize that evidence of hurt. She tried to apologize to him, but he would not listen. I don't blame you, Mrs. Roberts, he said. I know it wasn't your doing, but your husband wasn't just himself, I guess. He was fighting mad on general principles, and it was just my luck to get in the way, that was all. But just the same, the fireman shook his head. I know all about it. I used to punish the drink myself, and I'd done some funny things in them days, and I'm sorry I swore that warrant out and testified. But I was hot in the collar. I'm cooled down now, and I'm sorry I'd done it. You're awfully good and kind, she said, and then began hesitantly on what was bothering her. You, you can't stay now with him away, you know. Yes, that wouldn't do, would it? I'll tell you, I'll pack up right now, and skin out, and then before six o'clock, I'll send a wagon for my things. Here's the key to the kitchen door. Much as he demurred, she compelled him to receive back the unexpired portion of his rent. He shook her hand heartily at leaving, and tried to get her to promise to call upon him for a loan any time she might be in need. It's all right, he assured her. I'm married and got two boys. One of them's got his lungs touched, and she's with him down in Arizona, camping out. 
The railroad helped with the passes. As he went down the steps, she wondered that so kind a man should be in so madly cruel a world. The Donahue boy threw in a spare evening paper, and Saxon found half a column devoted to Billy. It was not nice. The fact that he had stood up in the police court with his eyes blackened from some other fray was noted. He was described as a bully, a hoodlum, a roughneck, a professional slugger, whose presence in the ranks was a disgrace to organized labor. The assault he had pleaded guilty of was atrocious and unprovoked, and if he were a fair sample of a striking teamster, the only wise thing for Oakland to do was to break up the union and drive every member from the city. And finally the paper complained at the mildness of the sentence. It should have been six months at least. The judge was quoted as expressing regret that he had been unable to impose a six-month sentence, this inability being due to the condition of the jails, already crowded beyond capacity by the many cases of assault committed in the course of the various strikes. That night in bed Saxon experienced her first loneliness. Her brain seemed in a whirl, and her sleep was broken by vain gropings for the form of Billy she imagined at her side. At last she lighted the lamp and lay staring at the ceiling, wide-eyed, conning over and over the details of the disaster that had overwhelmed her. She could forgive, and she could not forgive. The blow to her love-life had been too savage, too brutal. Her pride was too lacerated to permit her wholly to return in memory to the other Billy whom she loved. Wine in, wit out, she repeated to herself, but the phrase could not absolve the man who had slept by her side, and to whom she had consecrated herself. She wept in the loneliness of the all-too-spacious bed, strove to forget Billy's incomprehensible cruelty, even pillowed her cheek with numb fondness against the bruise of her arm. But still resentment burned within her, a steady flame of protest against Billy and all that Billy had done. Her throat was parched, a dull ache never ceased in her breast, and she was oppressed by a feeling of goneness. Why, why? And from the puzzle of the world came no solution. In the morning she received a visit from Sarah, the second in all the period of her marriage, and she could easily guess her sister-in-law's ghoulish errand. No exertion was required for the assertion of all Saxon's pride. She refused to be in the slightest on the defensive. There was nothing to defend, nothing to explain. Everything was all right, and it was nobody's business anyway. This attitude but served to vex Sarah. I warned you, and you can't say I didn't, her diatribe ran. I always knew he was no good, a jailbird, a hoodlum, a slugger. My heart sunk into my boots when I heard you was running with a prize-fighter. I told you so at the time, but no, you wouldn't listen, you with your highfalutin' notions and more pairs of shoes than any decent woman should have. You knew better than me, and I said then to Tom, I said, it's all up with Saxon now. Them was my very words. Them that touches pitch is defiled. If you had only married Charlie Long, then the family 
wouldn't have been disgraced. And this is only the beginning, mark me, only the beginning. Where it will end, God knows. He'll kill somebody yet, that pug-ugly of yourn, and be hanged for it. You wait and see, that's all. And then you'll remember my words. As you make your bed, so you will lay in it. Best bet I ever had, Saxon commented. So you can say, so you can say, Sarah snorted. I wouldn't trade it for a queen's bed, Saxon added. A jailbird's bed, Sarah rejoined witheringly. Oh, it's the style, Saxon retorted airily. Everybody's getting a taste of jail. Wasn't Tom arrested at some street meeting of the socialists? Everybody goes to jail these days. The barb struck home. But Tom was acquitted, Sarah hastened to proclaim. Just the same, he lay in jail all night without bail. This was unanswerable, and Sarah executed her favorite tactic of attack in flank. Nice come down for you, I must say. That was raised straight and right and cutting up dildos with a lodger. Who says so, Saxon blazed, with an indignation quickly mastered. Oh, a blind man can read between the lines. A lodger, a young married woman with no self-respect, and a prize-fighter for a husband. What else would they fight about? Just like any family quarrel, wasn't it? Saxon smiled placidly. Sarah was shocked into momentary speechlessness. And I want you to understand it, Saxon continued. It makes a woman proud to have men fight over her. I am proud, do you hear? I am proud. I want you to tell them so. I want you to tell all your neighbors. Tell everybody. I am no cow. Men like me. Men fight for me. Men go to jail for me. What is a woman in the world for if it isn't to have men like her? Now go, Sarah, go at once, and tell everybody what you've read between the lines. Tell them Billy's a jailbird, and that I'm a bad woman whom all men desire. Shout it out, and good luck to you, and get out of my house, and never put your feet in it again. You are too decent a woman to come here. You might lose your reputation, and think of your children. Now get out. Go. Not until Sarah had taken an amazed and horrified departure did Saxon fling herself on the bed in a convulsion of tears. She had been ashamed before, merely of Billy's inhospitality and surliness and unfairness. But she could see, now, the light in which others looked on the affair. It had not entered Saxon's head. She was confident that it had not entered Billy's. She knew his attitude from the first. Always he had opposed taking a lodger, because of his proud faith that his wife should not work. Only hard times had compelled his consent, and now that she looked back, Almost had she inveigled him into consenting. But all this did not alter the viewpoint the neighborhood must hold, that everyone who had ever known her must hold, and for this too Billy was responsible. It was more terrible than all the other things he had been guilty of put together. She could never look anyone in the face again. Maggie Donahue and Mrs. Olson had been very kind, but of what must I have been thinking all the time they talked with her? And what must they have said to each other? What was everybody saying? Over the front gates and back fences, the men standing on the corners or talking in the saloons. 
Later, exhausted by her grief, when the tears no longer fell, she grew more impersonal and dwelt on the disasters that had befallen so many women since the strike troubles began. Otto Frank's wife, Henderson's widow, pretty Kitty Brady, Mary, all the womenfolk of the other workmen who were now wearing the stripes in San Quentin. Her world was crashing about her ears. No one was exempt. Not only had she not escaped, but hers was the worst disgrace of all. Desperately, she tried to hug the delusion that she was asleep, that it was all a nightmare, and that soon the alarm would go off and she would get up and cook Billy's breakfast so that he could go to work. She did not leave the bed that day, nor did she sleep. Her brain whirled on and on, now dwelling at insistent length upon her misfortunes, now pursuing the most fantastic ramifications of what she considered her disgrace, and again going back to her childhood and wandering through endless trivial detail. She worked at all the tasks she had ever done, performing, in fancy, the myriads of mechanical movements peculiar to each occupation, shaping and pasting in the paper-box factory, ironing in the laundry, weaving in the jute mill, peeling fruit in the cannery, and countless boxes of scalded tomatoes. She attended all her dances and all her picnics over again, went through her school days, recalling the face and name and seat of every schoolmate, endured the gray bleakness of the years in the orphan asylum, revisioned every memory of her mother, every tale, and relived all her life with Billy. But ever, and here the torment lay, she was drawn back from these far wanderings to her present trouble, with its parch in the throat, its ache in the breast, and its gnawing, vacant goneness. End of section 29